Thank you, Pastor Joe, for leading us in that. My last church that I pastored was in Edmonton. And at one point, we decided to read through the Gospel of Mark as a congregation. So we took a section of the Gospel of Mark every Sunday. And over the course of about four or five months, we went through the entire Gospel of Mark. Each week, we would assign either one of the staff members or someone from the congregation to do that particular reading. And the assignment was simple, just take the version of the Bible that you use and take the passage of Scripture and read it to the congregation. Well, one Sunday things went a little awry. I assigned a section from Mark to our children's director to read. It was Mark 6, 14 to 29. It just was what followed next in regards to our reading. Unfortunately, our children's director did not read the passage ahead of time. And so, during the service, it was her first read-through of this passage. And for whatever reason, she decided, since she's a children's director, to call all the children forward to kind of do a story time with the children while they all sat along the stage in the stairs next to her as she read this passage. So all the kids made their way to the front, and all the parents sat there and were all in awe of how cute their own kids were. And as the kids got around the children's director, she started to read the passage. And this is what she read. Then Herod's daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I'll give it to you. Now, I admit, I was sitting in the congregation listening to all this too, and why at this point I did not stand up and stop where this was heading, I will never know. But I just sat there as well, maybe just kind of dumbfounded by the whole situation, and she continued to read. All the kids around her, she then went on to read. So Herodias went out and asked her mother, Mom, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Now, at this point, why the children's director didn't stop, I will also never know, but she continued to read. With all these little kids around her, she read, So Herod immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldiers beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. Okay, kids, it's time to head off to junior church now. Uh, For today's craft, you will each be getting a pair of scissors. And we are going to cut off the head of John the Baptist, and we're going to glue it on a tray and then color it. Now make sure you use lots of red during your coloring. Now, fortunately, my church in Edmonton was pretty easygoing, and so this became the running joke for the next four or five months about this little children's story time. But in the moment, we all just cringed at how this story was going. But as I think back to that, it is a good reminder that not everything in the Bible is suitable for five-year-olds. There's a lot of ugliness In the Bible, a lot of very real-life, dirty, 
ugliness. You do not want to just sit down with your five and six-year-old and just read through the book of Genesis with them. That if, if, if you do, you better be prepared to start talking to your children at that age about things like murder and rape and incest and polygamy and genocide. Those are just some of the topics that are addressed in the very first book of the Bible. It's an extremely ugly book. Today's message, today's message from Scripture that is part of the Christmas story but often neglected is probably the ugliest part of the entire Christmas story. Which is why out of the five sweaters I was able to get at Value Village, I decided to wear what I thought was the ugliest one for today. We are doing, as I mentioned in the announcement, this ugly sweater sermon series to look at the ugly parts of the Christmas story. The parts that are there, but the parts that sometimes we look over. And today's story, as I said, is you're going to hear is, I think, probably the ugliest that it gets. What happens in this story is that after a group of Eastern astrologers find their way to the Jesus child, offer him gifts and worship him, before all of this happened, we read this of Herod, who was the king of Palestine at the time. He told these wise men to go and to find this child because he too wanted to worship this child. But as we find out from the text, Herod really did not want to worship this child. He wanted to kill the child. Herod thought of himself as the king of the Jews. Could you imagine Herod, who thinks of himself as the king of the Jews, has these Easterners come all the way and say, hey, we want to see the king of the Jews. Herod's probably thinking, I'm right here. There's like, no, no, not you. There's someone who's been born, who's the real king of the Jews. This is the one we want to see. And so Herod decides that he has to do away with this child. Now he tells the wise men to come and to let them know where this child is. The wise men are warned not to do that, and so the wise men take off. Herod then is infuriated. And he decides that he has to make sure this child is done away with. By the way, just in case you're wondering, this is not the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. This is a, a, another Herod a little later on, which also shows you something about this Herod family, the kind of family they are. And so after Herod discovers that the wise men do not come back to him, do not tell him where Jesus is, he comes up with a different plan to make sure that he will get away or that this newborn king will not get away. And this is what we read. This is the ugly story in Matthew chapter 2, 12 to 33. When it was time to leave the wise men, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod because we know Herod's plans. And then this is what Herod did. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And so, and here's where the story gets very dark. At this point, you could just think, great, God intervened, God rescued Jesus, they escaped, he warned them, good story. But then, Herod was furious, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action, is how Matthew describes it accurately, brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah was Herod's son, Archelaus. He was afraid to go there. This whole family has got a, a, a terrible reputation. Then after being warned in the dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophet said. He will be called a Nazarene. This passage is one when I mentioned last week, and my wife said to me, so what do you preaching on this Sunday, and I told her this story, she's like, what are you going to say about that story? I mean, it is a terrible story. You have all kinds of questions for God in stories like this. Okay, God warns Joseph, God protects Jesus, God's obviously all-powerful, can do whatever he wants, so it's a wonderful story about how Jesus is protected, but what about all those other children? Why doesn't God protect them? He obviously has the power to do so. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus brings his Savior into the world. Well, tell all those parents, all those mothers and fathers who lost one of their two-year or younger boys because of Jesus, that Jesus has come to save everyone. Certainly wouldn't look that way to them. I lost my child. To prepare, prepare for this message, the first thing I did with this passage this week was just to write it down by hand, word by word, just to slow down my reading of it. As all of us who have been in the Bible for a while, when it comes to some of the biblical stories that we are familiar with, it's easy to just read them very quickly and not really hear what they may be saying to us. And so just as a discipline, I wanted to concentrate more on this story and write it out word by word, print it, not even type it, just so that I could soak in each word. And as I wrote this out, there was a few things that became apparent for me. The first was, and, and, and this probably became apparent because of this ugliness series that I'm doing, and so my mind is 
sort of looking for ugliness right now. And that's where my mind is. And, and as I read this story, I couldn't help but recognize how many ugly words are in this story. I mean, the story itself, as Matthew says, is brutal. But as you go through the story, I circled words like warned, destroy, furious, killed, weeping, lamentation, dead, afraid, withdrew. I mean, these aren't your typical Christmas words. They're not the kind of words that show up on Christmas cards. Second, as I read through the story, is how often Matthew points out that elements of this story are there to fulfill what the prophets of old said. Verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Even the killing of the children, which is a bit of a brain twister, even all the children being killed, Matthew says in verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Uh, just in this story alone, there's three times that Matthew keeps saying, this is to fulfill this, this is to fulfill that. In fact, the first three chapters of, of Matthew, over and over and over again, Matthew continues to say, this happened to fulfill, this happened to fulfill, this happened to fulfill. It's a continual refrain in Matthew's introduction. Matthew obviously did not believe that Jesus' coming was random or just a mid-game decision by God. Plan A didn't work, now I'm going to try plan B. From Matthew's perspective and from the church perspective, all that was happening was fulfilled and fulfilling what God had planned long ago. Or what God knew was going to happen long ago. The third, as I was going through it, is the continual reference to Egypt in the story. Three times. And it's interesting because the story itself has an obvious parallel with a story from Egypt. In fact, Israel's greatest story in their own journey of faith. This was the turning point in Israel. This was something that Israel, their major feasts like the Passover, was all about. And that is the Exodus story. And it's no accident because this is the way Matthew writes his gospel. Matthew writes his gospel in such a way as to show that Jesus is embodying Israel's story. The church did not see Jesus as simply the next chapter. This chapter happened, this chapter, and then now comes the Jesus chapter. No, the church always saw Jesus as redoing Israel's story, embodying it. And so what you have in the Israel story in the Old Testament is Israel failing in their mission that God gave them. And Jesus now comes along, and Jesus becomes Israel, and Jesus now fulfills, becomes Israel, and fulfills God's mission for Israel in him. The whole book of Matthew is structured that way. 
The very fact that even Matthew has five major sermons of Jesus, just like the five books of Moses, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and paralleling with uh, Moses getting the commandments on Mount Sinai. Over and over, there's all these parallels, and it begins right with this story. Matthew parallels Jesus' story with the story of Israel, and here with the story of Exodus, because he wants to make a major point in his gospel. And that is, with the coming of Jesus, the world's true king has come and begun his reign. If, if you need a big idea for Matthew, what's Matthew all about? It's not little commandments here, little commandments here, and how to live life or do that. It's ultimately about the fact that the coming of Jesus means that the world's true king has begun his reign. That's why he keeps talking about God's kingdom all the time throughout Matthew's gospel. That's also why Luke and, and Mark do the same thing. The most defining event in Israel's history was their exodus from Egypt. It was this event that most told Israel what her God was like. He's a God. He's a king who saves and delivers his people. That's even what Jesus' name means. And Israel believed that since God had saved and had delivered them in the past, in the Exodus, setting them free from their captivity in Egypt, Israel believed that because God had done that in the past, God would do that in the future as well. That was the hope that Israel had. That because God had saved and delivered us in the past, God was going to save and deliver us in the future as well. They didn't always understand exactly what that meant and how God was going to save them, but they certainly believed that. And what did they believe that God was going to save them from? The ugliness of things like destroy, furious, killed, weeping, lamentations, dead, afraid. These things God was going to save his people from. And so the story's parallel. In the Exodus story, you have a tyrannical pharaoh who saw himself as a god. A man who felt that he had authority over whether or not people lived or died. And yet, ironically, as we often see with these puffed up ruling bullies, Pharaoh lived under constant paranoia that someone was going to take him out. And so in his insecurity, we read in Exodus, the very first chapter of Exodus, that Pharaoh then gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the river Nile. Because Pharaoh felt that his kingship could be threatened by these people, he decided to kill all the boys. Make sure that every boy that is born is thrown into the Nile River. And then 12 to 1400 years later, depending on when you date the Exodus, a much smaller king is on the throne. And he's 
ruler of a much smaller land, but he's just as arrogant. He's just as puffed up, but he's also just as paranoid, just as insecure, and just as cruel. And so when these eastern astronomers come asking about a king who has been born, this King Herod, just like Pharaoh, goes into full panic mode and orders his soldiers to kill all the male children born in Bethlehem. I mean, there'd be uh, no way anybody from Israel would not pick up that parallel with the beginning of Jesus' life with the Exodus story that they were absolutely immersed in. It was their climax story. By the way, this Herod that did this is the same man who slaughtered the male that that slaughtered all the male children is the same Herod that had three of his own sons executed because he at different points felt that they were a threat to his throne. This was not an uncommon thing for Herod or for any of these rulers to do when they felt that their power was being threatened. Now, we all recognize, and it's almost universally accepted, that the killing of children is one of the most evil things that someone can do. The fact that Pharaoh and Herod and other historical tyrants do this so easily shows us just how depraved these people can become. And also why they are hated by so many of their subjects. I mean, when images like this one come out in 2015, many of you remember this image that was on the news of this refugee boy washed up in shore. Or when we see images like this of this bloodied and shell-shocked child as collateral damage from the Syrian war. Every single one of us knows that there's something wrong when stuff like this happens. And yet stuff like this happens because we continue to have the pharaohs and herods of the world who remain unmoved by images like this. They care more about their own power, they care more about their own self-preservation than they do children. This is what it would have been like for the parents that lived during Pharaoh's time or lived during Herod's time when the soldiers went through and began slaughtering all the children. But what the Exodus story and what the Christmas story show us ultimately, which is why we are Christians, is that ugliness doesn't win. In both cases, no matter what evil does to try to remain in power, God's Savior slips through the hands of evil. Tolkien brilliantly displays this in his Lord of the Rings. A little hobbit, inconspicuous Hobbit is able to slip through the vast evil powers throughout Middle-earth. If you've ever read The Lord of the Rings or even watched the movies, you, you are almost overwhelmed by how huge evil is. It's so dark. The movies, the books, there's so much darkness. And yet this tiny little light 
of a hobbit with a ring slips through evil's hands and eventually destroys the ring and is victorious. This is the way God works. In the case of the Exodus, baby Moses escapes. In a weird kind of twist, Moses also is put into the Nile River, like all the boys were supposed to be. It's just that he happened to land in a basket. And through the basket is saved. Raised by Pharaoh's own daughter to eventually come back and rescue God's people from the false rulers of the world. In the same way in the Christmas story, baby Jesus escapes. Though he's put on a Roman cross, like the Nile River, both of these in the stories are where you're supposed to die. But just as Moses survives, Jesus ends up surviving the cross. Yes, he does die, but he's saved through a resurrection. Two, like Moses, come back and rescue God's people from the false rulers of the world. Jesus is reenacting Moses' story, and what Moses did at a small level, Jesus is doing at a cosmic level. He's showing us that with the coming of Jesus, the world's true king has come and begun his reign. That's what Matthew wants us to know. That with the coming of Jesus, the world's true king has come and begun his reign. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus' dominant message is the announcement of the kingdom of heaven. Both Mark and Luke refer to the same thing as the kingdom of God. Most scholars say that because Matthew was primarily writing to the Jews, and the Jews believed that the name of God was so holy they couldn't even utter it or they refused to utter it, uh, Matthew just being sensitive to, to the Jews refers to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven, but they're one and the same. So that way the Jews could read heaven in place of God. But it's the same thing. Jesus' announcement is that he is the king and if he's the king, he must have a kingdom. His kingdom is God's kingdom. His kingdom is heaven's kingdom. Matthew is showing his readers that this is the true king. All other kings are, at best, their temporary stand-ins. Or at worst, all other kings are either pretenders or antichrists. Anti-kings. Herod is merely a pretend king of the Jews. And he's a bad one at that. In fact, Herod doesn't even come from the line of David. It's Jesus who's the true king of the Jews. And like Moses at the Exodus, he's going to slip through Herod's evil hands. But Matthew wants to take this even further. Jesus is more than just the king of the Jews. Remember the whole setup of this story. The setup of this story is Easterners, probably Persians, coming because they saw a star in the sky and wanting to worship this king of the Jews. Why would Persians want to worship a Jewish king? 
That seems kind of weird. Unless they somewhat understood that this king was something more than just a king of the Jews. That Jesus was a king that went beyond just the Jewish people. In fact, the Exodus story begins to show this as well. And with Matthew paralleling this with the Exodus story, it also shows that, yes, Jesus is the king, or Yahweh God is certainly the God of not only Israel, but he's the God of the Egyptians. I mean, when you look at and understand the way that that Egypt's worldview worked back in the Old Testament or or back in the um, times of old, you will know that the pharaohs and, and the people who they could convince believed that the pharaohs were gods. Gods who walked among them. They also believed that the Nile River and that the sun were also gods that gave life to their land. These were things that they worshipped. And then this Israel God comes and doesn't just do some random plagues but does things that were a complete affront to the power of Egypt's gods. The killing of Pharaoh, who's supposedly a god. The killing of Pharaoh's firstborn son shows the fact that Pharaoh does not have the power of life and death for the people. He can't even save his own son's life. You also look at God turning the Nile God to blood. The Nile was supposed to bring life to the land, and God simply turns it to blood so it does nothing but brings death to the land. You look at the sun. The sun was almost the the high God of Egypt, Ra. What does God do? Like a light switch, he shuts it off. Brings complete darkness on the land. He's showing the Egyptians, your Pharaoh's nothing. I can take his child easily. The Nile River, it's not a god. I can turn it to blood if I want to. The sun, it's not a god. I have control over it. I can shut it off if I want to. Even the first encounter, when Moses comes before the Egyptians and the magicians... And Moses throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. And the Egyptian magicians with a pharaoh say, oh, that's no big deal. We can do the same thing. They throw their staffs on the ground. They turn to snakes. And then all of a sudden, Moses' snake eats the snakes of the magicians. This is not just simply our snake, God's snake, is more powerful than yours in just a snake aspect of it, but if you look at Pharaoh, what I guess you could call a crown, do you notice what Pharaoh always wore on his head? It was a cobra. That was the symbol of Pharaoh. That was the symbol of his power. That was the symbol of his deity. When Moses' snake swallowed up the magician's snakes, it was the same message of God saying, Pharaoh, I can eat you up in a snap of my fingers. And crush you like a bug. You are not all powerful. You are simply a man. I've got power over you. The symbolism is, is 
immense throughout the plagues and the things that were going on. It's God saying that he is in ultimate control, not the pharaohs, not the Herods of this world. Matthew is identifying the king of kings, the lord of lords, the god of gods with Jesus Christ. Titles that kings sometimes tried to use for themselves. Many kings took on titles like king of kings or king of the universe or other ridiculous type of titles. When we understand the truth, we know that all these titles that kings take for themselves are mere jokes. Because there's only one king of kings. And Matthew is saying that with the coming of Jesus, the world's true king has come. And he's begun his reign. This is why it is so important for us to understand what Jesus means when he announces the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not talking about an otherworldly kingdom. At least not one that's going to stay otherworldly. If that were the case, he'd be no threat to Pharaoh. He'd be no threat to Herod. They would just simply say, okay, Jesus, take your people and go off to your kingdom in some other place and then leave us here to rule this kingdom. But that's not what Jesus came to announce. That's why Jesus' message was so political and such a threat to the people. Jesus, when he encouraged us to pray with the words, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is saying that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which is God's reign and God's realm, is going to eventually swallow up every realm, including the earth. God's reign will be over all of his creation. He's coming back again to set up his kingdom where evil will no longer have any place in it. As singer-songwriter Steve Bell puts it, this story falls as a dark and heavy thud in the midst of all of our cozy, warm Christmas narratives that have been tamed and sentimentalized, fit for family viewing, to shore up a worldview more in keeping with Disney than with the sometimes grim realism of the Gospels. Bell then makes his message hit home when he mentions in regards to the slaying of the children and the fact that these things continue to happen. He says, in my own Canadian context, our recent history of Indian residential schools reminds us how easily we trade the lives of innocent children for versions of prosperity and well-being. Or the overwhelming evidence of climate change that will face the children of future generations as a result of our own current claim to comfort and privilege. I would go on and add, what about the babies that we kill under the mantra that we are the rulers of our own body? How may it look if we understood Jesus as the ruler of our bodies and as pregnant mothers the bodies of the babies within us. They're not disposable the way Herod and Pharaoh and those kinds of powers think that children are disposable when they inconvenience us for our own authority. 
When we raise ourselves or others up as king, the innocent always suffer, as we see with Pharaoh and Herod and the killing of children. But when Jesus is recognized as king, it's good news to the poor. It's good news to the vulnerable, to the needy, to the disabled, to the outcast, to the forgotten, and to the children that Jesus said, let them come to me. The gospel is not escape to pie in the sky, but it's a conquering of evil and a restoring the things that have fallen to good. Even in the horrendous ugliness of Herod's slaughter of the innocents, God gives us a glimpse that good will win as God's deliverer escapes, comes back to fight again, and wins. So that, after an unsuccessful suicide attempt, Herod endured intense itching, painful intestinal problems, breathlessness, convulsions in every limb, and gangrene of the genitalia before he died. And guess what? All of this may just have been a foreshadow of what many like Herod can continue to expect in the next life. Whereas the promise of new creation, resurrection, new life, peace, and harmony in a new world order with Jesus as king is awaiting those on whom God will deliver from evil and on whom God will bring peace on earth and goodwill to all who his favor rests upon. Like those children. Why? Because with the coming of Jesus, the world's true king has come and begun his reign. And we anticipate and wait the day when he comes back again and puts it into its full glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's, it's this message in the midst of all the ugliness that gives us such hope. If we didn't believe this to be true, so much of life, so many of the things that happen would just be senseless, unjust, with no justice ever being able to make things right. It really, Lord, would be despair. And yet, Lord, though we do not deny the horribleness of all these terrible things, we do believe there is a God, there is a king, there is one who is going to make it all right somehow. Or evil will be punished. For sins will be forgiven. And good will be recorded. Rewarded. And those, Lord that have not had a real chance will be given a real chance. Lord, we leave this all up to you knowing you are the good king, you are the right king, and it is to you that we bow and it is to you that we walk by faith even when we cannot see in the darkness. Though we may for a time have to be 
no more brighter than little hobbits going through Middle Earth. If that's what you've called us to, Lord, we need to believe that that has a purpose and a mission that will bring about your ultimate results. May we be faithful to you no matter how dark everything else seems around us. Pray these things in Jesus' name.